Well, good morning. Say that again. This is that 11 a.m. This is the extra anointed service. Good morning. <laughs> My name is John Allen. I am uh, happy to see you all. Welcome to Risen Church. Who knows what holiday we are celebrating next Sunday, October 31st. I, got, I, hear, I hear Reformation Day. Halloween, that's right. I got Reformation Day. I got Halloween. Some of you are like, can you say Halloween in church? Is that Okay. You can if your name is Lydia Captain. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, you can say Halloween. And uh, actually, some people think, again, that those two things are at odds. It's like you got Reformation Day, which is a holiday that celebrates uh, something that happened we're going to talk about uh, in 1517. It was sparked off on October 31st. Um, in 1517, and, and that was the Protestant Reformation. We're going to kind of get into a little bit about what that was this morning. Um, but it happened on Halloween. In fact, the word Halloween actually, because people think, well, you see Halloween as it's celebrated today, and it's like, that can't be of God. And then you look at, you know, like society and all this stuff, and it's like, well, let's redeem this by just changing it entirely, and we'll call it Reformation Day. Right? We'll celebrate something completely different. And yet, this morning, I want to show you that those two things aren't necessarily at odds. In fact, the original word for Hallows or, or, or Halloween comes from the term or phrase All Hallows Eve. That's where we get the term Halloween. It's like if you have like an old English accent and you said All Hallows Eve really fast, it would sound like Halloween. That's where it comes from. And it was actually designed, Halloween was designed by the church to bring redemption to pagan festivals like Samhain that celebrated death. So the idea was that instead of celebrating death, believers or Christians could celebrate life and even eternal life by honoring the lives of Christians who have passed on to heaven to be with Jesus. This is why we celebrate what's called All Hallows Day on November 1st or All Saints Day. That's the heart behind it. And so Halloween is All Hallows Eve, and it's a celebration of Christ's victory over death as we celebrate those who have gone to be with Jesus and, their, and, their, and honoring their lives. Now, of course, over the years, that's been twisted with some weird traditions that do celebrate death, and people fall back into those ways that are not of God. But it's just more opportunity for the children of light and life to live as agents of redemption and light up the dark, as it has been for a long time. And so this is one of the reasons why Martin Luther, a man who lived during the 16th century, chose October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, to post his famous 95 thesis on the Wittenberg church door in Germany about 504 years ago now. So this year, we want to provide you, Risen Church, with a little redemptive handout for those trick-or-treaters that come to your door. Now, don't worry, it's not going to be as confrontational as the 95 Thesis was. If you know what that was and you read that, you're going to be like, that is not going to go over well with my neighbors, right? Um, however, uh, we're going to talk more about this next week, but I want to briefly read what is going to be on our handout, and that handout is going to come along with a little glow, like an orange glow necklace and a full-size candy bar because we don't hand out toothbrushes at this church. <laughs> yeah, although Dr. Brent Moses might disagree with that. I just saw him the other day. He probably needed to have my toothbrush handy. Um, but anyway, he's a dentist. That's all right. On track. So, <laughs> um, so we're, again, we're going to talk more about this uh, next week, but I do want to briefly read what's going to come with that little handout, a little pamphlet that we're going to hand out with the, the candy and the um, glow necklace. Okay, you guys ready? Here's what's going to be on it. So, it's going to, at the top, say, Light in the Dark, the true story of All Hallows' Eve. It already sounds like a ghost story, right? You're like, oh, but it's a holy ghost story. <laughs> hey oh, All right, that's, <laughs> that's, not on, that's not on the handout. It's okay. All right. <laughs> um, so this is what it says. 
Once upon a time in a land far, far away, on a day much like today and a night much like tonight, the sound of door knocking could be heard throughout the streets of a small town. It started with a tap, 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 and then a knock, 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 and grew to a pound, pound, pound. But the young man knocking wasn't hoping for candy. He was posting a letter. The world was ruled by a dark prince who had twisted the good king's words so much that they lost their meaning and light. The people had been so shrouded in darkness that their eyes had trouble focusing on the light, kind of like waking up to the sunshine after a long sleep. The light had become uncomfortable. But this young man's letter was a letter of life and light, and he knew it would be both uncomfortable for the people and upsetting to the dark prince. But the good king wanted to awaken his people from the darkness to shine with his words of life and light. So he chose this young man to initiate the awakening. And so he did with the sound of a knock, knock, knock at the door and a message of life and light in the dark. So this isn't merely a fairy tale. It's the true story of how one of the most significant renewal movements in history began. On October 31st, 1517, a man named Martin Luther posted a letter to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. He knew that the church would be full the next day because November 1st is All Hallows Day or All Saints Day, a day to celebrate the life of godly men and women who had passed on to heaven. So on All Hallows Eve, Martin posted this letter of life and light in the darkness and redemption for all. Martin's letter pointed to the ancient truth that grace is available to all by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's the message of light and life that stands at the door of every heart and knocks. His message isn't political, it's eternal. His message isn't beholden to human agendas. It's about beholding the king and kingdom of heaven, even now on the earth. There is truth, there is life, and there is light even in the darkness. It may be uncomfortable at first, but there are many who have received the light of his grace and would love to walk alongside you and your family in newness of life as we behold good King Jesus together. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me, Jesus Christ, Revelation 3.20. So we pray that this candy would be a reminder of the sweetness of the good king's message of grace, and this glow necklace would demonstrate the light of truth even in the midst of darkness. Happy All Hallows' Eve and Reformation Day, Risen Church. And then we've got some information about service times and website and that sort of thing. So um, the vision here, is not to shame people. It's not to boycott the neighborhood, right? It's not to be like, you wicked little kids, get off my porch, right? That's not what it's about. The goal here is redemption. So next week, we're going to celebrate life and, and our faithful heritage of witnesses that, to the truth and to the goodness of Jesus and, and that heritage that we have as church people who light up the dark and have for thousands of years. And so you can pick these hands up, these handouts up uh, next week on Sunday morning, or you can get out in front of it and get them at community groups this week. I think we'll have them available for you. If not, then Sunday morning it is. But um, it's first come, first serve. So if you want them, come get them. It's going to be great. Um, so now uh, let's dive into the message. For the past couple of weeks... We've been in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews in our series called Church People. So when you hear the phrase church people in our society, it doesn't always have a positive connotation, right? We've talked about this as we've gone through this series. Unfortunately, when people talk about church people, even when church people talk about church people, it can tend to get a little negative. You guys notice that? I have. But when God talks about church people... He has a very different perspective entirely, right? So this series that we're in is about taking a look at church people through the eyes of Jesus Christ, and the way that he sees things is actually the truth, amen? So to see church people the way he sees church people rather than the way this world tends to see them, not through rose-colored glasses, Right? Like church hurt is a real thing, but so is forgiveness and grace 
And this is what we're called to extend and receive as true church people. So in this series, I hope to reclaim the why behind the what for gathering together and loving one another as God's beloved, spirit-filled, redeemed, and gospel-commissioned covenant community. The people who are called to love one another just as Jesus has loved you, you are to love one another. This is how they will know you are my disciples is by your love for one another. That's what Jesus said in, in John 13, 34, and 35. It was a new commandment that he gave to us. You see, we aren't perfect people, but we are perfectly loved people and perfectly positioned people to proclaim and demonstrate the grace of Christ to one another and a world in desperate need of it. And so one of the main characteristics of church people, right, both in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of Jesus, is that we are people of faith. Now, as we're going to see in our passage today, this is actually the most important characteristic or character trait that's given to God's people throughout history. But the Bible has a very different way of talking about faith than the way the world talks about faith. In fact, when the Bible describes people of faith, it often means the exact opposite of what our society means when they talk about faith. So what does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to have faith, specifically even, in Jesus? It's almost become trendy to be a person of faith, right? Like in our society, it used to be like uh, that, that it wasn't a, you know, person of faith actually meant definitely a Christian, but now that's not what it means. Now it can mean just about anything you want it to mean, right? Like every politician out there claims to be a person of faith. But what does that mean? Like faith in What? Faith in yourself, faith in the law, faith in the Constitution. How about faith in people, humanitarians? Does being a person of faith mean you're a risk taker? Some people think that, right? Or maybe it just means that you're a spiritual person. That's a person of faith, right? Maybe they even believe in God. The book of James says, great, even the demons believe that, and they tremble. See, in a society where truth is relative and all meaning is subject to the feelings of each individual, the term faith has even been hijacked and twisted to mean something very different than what it means in the Bible. Today we live in what's called a pluralistic society where there's no real agreed-upon absolute truth. You ever heard that term, pluralistic society? Right? It's a society that says, you do you, believe in your truth, but don't tell me what your God wants me to do, or that your God is God over everyone. Like, the only God over everyone is the emperor. That's the context that the book of Hebrews was written into. Like, all faiths are welcome as long as they don't contradict the absolute power of the emperor. Right? And that's the context that we're reading this morning. Like the book of Hebrews is addressed to Christians in the first century who were facing very real persecution and it was much easier to slip into the culturally accepted ways of life that they had before they became Christians. For the Hebrew Christians specifically, these were people who had been Jewish in their exercise and practice and then they came to Christ and so for them there was a lot of pressure to revert back to the accepted Jewish practices of the time. Like even offering animal sacrifices for their sin and disassociating with Jesus and the church. You see, by doing that, they could avoid Roman persecution, and they could kind of fly under the radar, and they could still be accepted into the trade guilds of the time so that they could continue building their businesses and profiting in society. Because by confessing Jesus as Savior and King, and the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, they were ostracized, they were side-eyed, and some had already been arrested for their faith in Christ. So these Christians were saying, Jesus is the true king of all, whether you recognize him or not. He's not just the king of Sunday. He's not just the king of Sunday school. He's the king over every day and every school and everybody, whether you recognize him or not. He's not just one way in the lineup of many ways, right? Coexist. That's not 
Christianity. He's the way. He is the truth, and he is the life. That's offensive to a pluralistic society that declares there is no truth except the truth that there is no truth. Which doesn't really make any sense, but that is the code that pluralism worships. That's the religion they preach. And yes, it is religion, and yes, it is preached and even worshipped. In that kind of society, even faith becomes twisted to mean something ambiguous and insubstantial. In that kind of society, truth becomes blasphemy. In that kind of society, faith isn't based on evidence, and it has no real substance. Faith is more like a guess than it is a yes. This is a society, this is the society that presents faith as a blind leap in the dark. You ever heard that term? Leap of faith, blind leap of faith. This is how we think of faith in our society. It's irrational. Faith is irrational. Faith is illogical. Faith is, it's not rooted in anything of truth or substance or evidence. That's how this world defines or attempts to redefine faith. But that's not how the Bible defines faith. This is why so many logically oriented people say they cannot believe in God or trust in Christ because it requires faith. And they say they need a good reason. This is the society that pits faith against logic or science as though they're at odds with one another. Because it is a society that undermines absolute truth. Therefore, people of faith must not be logical. They must be kind of, well, unreasonable, irrational. And if that's you this morning, if that's kind of where you're at, then I have great news for you. Because that's a false concept of faith. This morning, I want to show you how the Bible defines faith. I want to show you not only that faith is substantial, and based on evidence, I want to show you that faith is substantial and faith is itself evidence. So you're going to need your, you're going to need to lean into this one, okay? Because this may be a big paradigm shifter for many of us. And I'm going to show you by reading also a substantial amount of scripture, all right? We got 48 verses in the book of Hebrews for you this morning, okay? So we're going to read through the last part of chapter 10, uh, where we, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the last part of chapter 10, um, verse 32, and go all the way through chapter 11, verse 40, all right? So the reason I want to do that is because this is a passage that was designed to actually be read all at once. It's a letter that's like a sermon itself about what faith is and the heritage of faith that church people belong to. Okay, so this section is basically broken down into two parts. First is a definition, and the second part drives that definition home by demonstrating that faith as it was on display and at work in the lives of God's people throughout history. And so here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. If you're still sitting there trying to figure out what Sam Hain is and Halloween and All Hallows' Eve and Reformation Day, and you're like, what just happened? Like, I don't even, I thought we were supposed to be against Halloween. I don't understand what's going on now. If you're like, and then he's moved on, you don't know what's going on. This is the one thing I want you to get. If you get nothing else, get this. True faith begins with reason. It's activated by obedience, and it's realized through experience, okay? True faith begins with reason, it's activated by obedience, and it's realized through experience. So we're going to talk about what that means. Turn with me to Hebrews 10.32, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So again, it's important to remember some context here that the book of Hebrews is written to a first century church who was predominantly Jewish. So that means that they've been, remembered that they've been persecuted and pressured to return to that old sacrificial system, or else they'd be ostracized from society or even arrested by the Roman government. So whether it's because of fear or persecution or uh, just laziness, <laughs> or probably some of both, some of them had been refusing to gather together. Hebrews 10 is the encouragement then to draw near both to God and to one another. 
and to continue to do so. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, put it like this. And I'm going to need the slide because I put it down in my notes wrong. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So last week we read, we, we, we looked at that two weeks ago, and then last week we read about how sin is ultimately what causes us to shrink back from God and one another, and how grace covers that, right? And so now, here we are in the last portion of chapter 10, and we get an encouragement then that says this. Hebrews 10, verse 32, says this, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So he's calling attention to what had happened after they came to Christ. They endured difficulty. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and he says this in verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In verse 39, but we are are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the encouragement here is that they can trust in the faith that they've been given. And he's literally corroborating the legitimacy of their saving faith because of the way it was demonstrated when things got difficult. He's calling their attention to how God moved in their lives through faith even back then. And so he's saying, guys, all that stuff about shrinking back, that's not who you are, and I've seen it, and I'm confirming and I'm encouraging that we are not of those who shrink back. I'm corroborating the evidence that was on display through your faith. So some in the church were publicly reproached and afflicted because of their faith in Christ, but they didn't shrink back even though they were arrested. And then others in the church didn't shrink back from those who were arrested either. Like this, the community continued to stay together, even though it would have been easy for them to be like, I don't know them, right? Like they're arrested. They don't want to get guilt by association, but they didn't. They would visit them in prison and they would care for them even in their affliction. They partnered with them together. So their faith was proven substantial, meaning it wasn't just a mental activity. Their faith was activated and substantiated by obedience even in difficulty. That's a theme. That's a theme that I want you to notice because it's going to carry through to this next chapter. It even says, this is crazy, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you see the reason there? They were reasonable. They reasoned. They're like, okay, yeah, I mean, like, take my stuff, I'd rather have heaven than cling to this world and deny Jesus. It was reasonable. Their faith was logical, rational, reasonable. That's substantial faith. That's a reasonable faith. And it's the evidence even of their salvation. So we're going to come back to this first century church um, and these first century church people. Uh, so let's keep reading. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Here we go. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, time out. You guys are like, verse 1, dude. You're timing out already. We got a long ways to go. Um, but I want you to see something. This is one of those rare times where I think that, that a different version than the ESV version that we're reading from here actually grabs the Greek better and pulls it out a little bit more uh, thoroughly. Um, so this passage isn't wrong, right? The way they translated that's not wrong, but I actually think the King James Version does a better job of drawing the essence of this passage out. Like in the King James Version says this, now faith is the substance Say substance. substance. 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. Say evidence. evidence. The evidence of things not seen. Now, I'm going to explain why I think that that is a better essence after we finish chapter 11. Here we go. Verse 2. For by it, meaning faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful. Who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, because he was really old, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, all that they had hoped for. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, by bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking forward to Christ. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, and after they had been encircled for seven days, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, or Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. There's reason in this. There's a reason. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went out about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And and I love this verse. Of whom, these people, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they were looking forward to what we have now. This has become known as the hall of faith. Right? We just got a really brief overview of the Old Testament that stretches all the way back to creation in Genesis 1. Like the intention here is to highlight, though, the major characteristic that all of God's true people share this one common denominator. You know what it is? Faith. So, to a people who were being pressured to fall back into the ways of their ancestors, chapter 11 drills home the fact that their ancestors were people of faith that were looking forward to the promise that we have now received. In other words, he's like, you want to honor your godly heritage? Then live with enduring faith in Christ the King and don't shrink back either from God or one another. This is our heritage. Because that's the heritage of faith. This is the heritage of church people that stretches back to creation. See, that's what this list is all about. It's not just a heritage, ladies and gentlemen, for the Jews. Right? This is what we've been grafted into by the blood of Christ. Whether you're Jewish, Gentile, Greek, Roman, Native American, it doesn't matter. Right? It's about the blood of Christ, and it grafts us into this heritage of faith, this family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is our family. This is our heritage. So again, what is faith? Faith is the substance. The Greek word there is hypostasis. The substance, the hypostasis of things hoped for. The evidence or the elonkos, which is the Greek word. Elonkos of things not seen. So many different versions of scripture translate these Greek words in different ways. Because the, the truth is they're just trying to capture the relational nuance that's involved. And it's kind of hard to pull it over into English. Right? In fact, I think almost God knew that it would be that way. That's why if you have a different translation, you may have different words in that translation. And I think one of the reasons for that, um, or, 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 or that one of the reasons for this litany of demonstration of what faith is, is, be, is so that we can understand what that definition means. Right? Because what do we do when we don't understand scripture and we want to understand a, a scripture verse better? What do we do? We let Scripture interpret Scripture. We don't go, well, that one fits my opinion a little bit better. No. We say, what what does the rest of the Bible actually have to say about this? Right? Thankfully, we've got an entire chapter that flows right out of the entire Old Testament that gives us some very real context and even demonstration of this definition of faith. So it doesn't matter how society defines faith. What matters is how God defines faith. And based on this definition and the examples that are given here, what is faith? Well, I'll tell you what, it's not. Faith is not blind. Faith is not a guess. Faith in Christ is not ignorant or naive or wavering or wishy-washy. It's not fickle or unsubstantiated or uncorroborated. It's not illogical and it's not unreasonable. It's not based in emotion. It's not based in sentiment or circumstance. Faith is not without evidence, nor is it without testimony. Sam Storms put it like this. Faith is not believing in your heart what your mind otherwise tells you isn't true. 
Faith is not trusting in something for which there are no facts. Faith is not an existential blind leap into the dark. Faith is not putting your trust in something or someone about whom you know nothing. Faith is not the opposite of knowledge. Faith is not the enemy of reason. Faith is not the antithesis of scientific endeavor. Faith is not believing in something that runs counter to obvious and incontrovertible evidence. Faith is not superstition. Faith is not a positive mental attitude. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not a creative power that brings into existence things that otherwise wouldn't exist. Uh Uh-oh. Faith is not a weapon through which we get God to do things for us that he otherwise would not do. So what is faith? Well, we're given more than just a definition, right? We're given multiple demonstrations. God knows we have narrative minds, so he gives us a narrative. Notice that this hall of faith isn't just about what these men and women said they believed. It's about their actions, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's what demonstrates the authenticity of their faith. So you might say, well, I want to have faith, but how do I get there? Do I just believe? Well, you need a reason, like a real reason, a substantial reason, because faith begins with reason. Again, it's completed, like it goes continually into, faith begins with reasons, but activated with obedience, but it begins with reason. Like if you do something without a good reason, that's not faith, that's just dumb. And probably in a very dangerous and fallen world, unwise. Right? And the Bible is all about wisdom. There's a lot of passages about wisdom. Right? So we we can't do something stupid and say it's faith. So, So let's look at this. Right? True faith begins with reason. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So don't be a jerk. Right? We, We don't compromise, but we also have compassion. That's who we are. Right? We are, we are compassionate and uncompromising in our pursuit of Jesus and our pointing to him and witnessing to him. So the question then is, could you give a reason for the hope that's in you? If you can't, then a follow-up question would be, how substantial is your hope and how authentic is your faith in Christ? You see, this is about testimony, Okay? This is about testimony. This is not about your intellectual aptitude or your capacity to articulate, you know, whatever. Like, I'm not talking about giving an apologetic discourse on text criticism as it relates to postmodern thought. That's what I'm talking about. Like, some of you guys think I could never do what he does. You know, like, he's, I'm not saying, this is not talking about you coming up and preaching to a bunch of people or getting into an argument with some professor in, you know, Ivy League schools. That's not what we're talking about here. This is about testimony. Right? The question is, do you have a reason for the hope you have in Christ? If you do, then let it be known every chance you get with your words and your actions. Speak that truth and demonstrate that truth. Don't just try to demonstrate that truth without speaking the truth, by the way. Right? You guys hear this all the time. There's a quote that says that uh, share the gospel often and if necessary, use words. You ever heard that? It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi who never said that. He would never, this is a guy who snuck into the walls, I think it was of Constantinople, a Muslim city at the time, because he couldn't get in there, so he snuck himself in with a barrel so he could articulate the gospel to them. He didn't just go in there and walk around and be like, look how great I am. All right, bye. And somehow think, poof, they're going to come to Christ. No, he went in and shared the gospel and the good news of this grace, right? J.D. Greer said, uh, once said that, 
I love this. You probably heard me say it all the time because I think it's hilarious. He said that saying sharing the gospel often and if necessary using words is like saying share your phone number often and when necessary use digits. You got to speak up. So let it be known their testimony which must be saturated and if you are in Christ it will be saturated with the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace. You see society twists that definition of faith because it doesn't want you to have a good reason. It twists it because that might mean truth is actually a thing. Turns out it is. And his name is Jesus Christ. So we don't just argue with people. We point to the truth. Did you know that truth is a person? Truth is a person. That's why when you put truth on display, you can let that truth be who that truth is. His name is Jesus. You don't have to win every argument. You're not called. He didn't say go and win every argument. He said, go and make disciples, right? So this is what we do, and we do it with compassion, without compromise, and we do it in gentleness and in love, right? But back to faith. How can I know? How can I know? Isn't it just blind faith? Like, no. It's substantial faith, and it's supported by reason and experience and testimony and thousands of years of corroboration. Like These are the testimonies surrounding the ultimate reason for faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many will say they don't have a reason, but in reality, they've simply suppressed the truth by their own unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 puts it. Sin will make you find a reason to avoid the evidence and suppress the truth. That's what sin does. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, we just finished that Revelation series, and the memory verse was Revelation 12, 11, which says that they conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. And so this is why we testify. And my hope is that you would hear his message of grace and draw near by faith. And the reasons for faith in Christ far outweigh the reasons for denying him. Verse 2 told us that the people of old received their commendation from God because of their faith. Right? Remember me saying that when I read through all those scriptures? And every time I came across commendation, I was like emphasizing it. There's a reason. I wanted you to see how many times it says that in there. Because the word for commendation is the Greek word martyreo. It comes from the word martyr. It's where we get that word martyr from. Or faithful witness. So it's a legal term. I love this. It's a legal term for the testimony of someone who's basing their very life on the legitimacy of what they're testifying to. Again, this is how we conquer the enemy. right? And this is what Jesus is saying here. Like the implication here is that God himself is taking the witness stand. Get this image. Like when he commends these, this hall of faith, it's saying, it's painting a picture. It's martyreo. He's saying the implication is that God himself is taking the witness stand to testify that these people are his authentic, beloved children and that it's all evidenced by their faith. He's commending them for their faith, meaning he's testifying, that one's mine, and there's the evidence. Now, we don't have time to get into all the details of every example, but I, I, I want to hone in on a, a few of them. Chapter 11, verse 11, talks about Sarah. Now, a lot of the people that we went through, there's a lot of characters. Obviously, there's a lot of characters in the Bible. Um, I would encourage you to look up all of these characters. Go back and read the story that's attached to all of these people in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, just Google it. Google is good for something. Okay? So verse, verse 11, um, it talks about Sarah. And it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered, say considered, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So God promised Abraham he'd have a child with Sarah. And Abraham was old, like he was really old. Some say that they were both in their late 80s, Abraham probably even older, right? And so this is way past baby-making age, right? Um, so on the surface, Sarah really had no good reason to believe. Like if you go back and read the story of Genesis, it says she even laughs when she first heard this promise from God. But then she 
considered him. And she considered him faithful, who had promised. That means she reasoned in her mind whether God could be trusted. He had cared for them their whole lives. He'd already been so faithful to her and her husband throughout their long lives at this point. She considered that. She reasoned. And when she did that, she experienced the very evidence of that which was unseen in the form of the promised child in her very womb. Her obedience to say yes brought then the experience of the promised son. In a tangible way, even. Try to tell Sarah that her faith was unreasonable or even uncertain. She had tasted and seen that the Lord was good, and she was now pregnant with the very presence of the promised child as her substantial and experienced proof. She knew that 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 he was real and he was good and he was faithful and he would be there for her. And it drove her into an experience of his goodness and his love for her and for others. But it began with a good reason for faith. And that reason was the goodness of God. Or how about Abraham, her husband? Like God's just blessed him with his beloved son Isaac and then he asks him to offer him up. That's heavy. Look at verse 19. It says, he considered, say considered. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now again, I would encourage you to go back and read these stories, because there is so much about these stories that points directly to Jesus. That's a whole sermon series in itself. But The only reason he even had a promised son to begin with was because of God's faithfulness to him, okay? So he reasons, he considers the faithfulness and the goodness of God and even the sovereignty of God, and he considers that he is even the God of resurrection. And he realizes that he has a very good reason to trust him. Multiple reasons. There's a logic to it. It's reasonable faith. And that then leads him to obedience. And he activates that faith through obedience because if he just leaves it there as a mental ascent and an attitude, then that faith is dead. It's that faith is activated through obedience. Right? And then it's realized through a deeper experience of God's faithfulness. Over and over again, we see this throughout the scriptures. Men and women whose faith demonstrates the goodness and trustworthiness of God, story after story, testimony after testimony, all pointing to the substantial evidence for our faith that's demonstrated by thousands and thousands of years of faithful testimony. 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul even points to 500 eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. He says to the Corinthians, look, a lot of these guys are still alive. Go talk to them if you don't believe me. Eyewitness testimony, a reason. That's a good reason, right? You've got a lot of testimony in this room about Jesus, a lot of it. He's like, a lot of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Look, this is Isaiah verse 118 says, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Guys, we're not insecure about our faith, This is not fickle emotionalism or irrational superstition. It's not. That is not Christianity, and that kind of worldly religious sentiment actually only creates spineless Christians who can't or won't give a reason for the hope they have in Christ when push comes to shove. This is a reasonable faith. True church people have this heritage of faith in his faithfulness, and it's the most reasonable thing you can do. Faith in Christ is the logical answer to this fallen and sinful world. Some of the most brilliant minds have written amazing books to help people take the first step of reasonable faith. Books like Tim Keller's Reason for God. Anybody ever read that? It's fantastic. Right? Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. It's great. C.S. Lewis is mere Christianity. Hello. Right? They're all rooted in logic and reason. In fact, 
extra anointed service. This means it's not in my notes. <laughs> you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that word is? The logos. You know what that means? He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. You see, it all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord of all creation. And every one of you in this room and everyone in this city and everyone in this world is, one, is in one of those categories. They either believe he's Lord, they either believe he's a lunatic, or they believe he's a liar. Or they just don't know anything. I'm not talking about dinosaurs. I'm not talking about aliens. I'm not talking about whether or not wormholes create doorways to new dimensions. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus. The first and foremost question that we all must come to grips with is, who is Jesus? Is there a good reason for faith in Jesus Christ? This isn't just empty philosophy that we assent to or some dry religion that we associate with. We're not pointing to a set of rules or regulations. We're pointing to a person, a living, breathing, resurrected person. And it's a person who meets us where we are and become, can become closer to you than your own skin. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that God became a man. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life with God Almighty and it's an eternal life that starts now through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to ignite and rejuvenate and re recreate you and regenerate your heart to give you a new affection for him. This is Christianity. And it's a life that does not just start one day when we die. We don't just get eternal life one day and when we die and go to heaven. It's now through the indwelling of his spirit as we operate as those who cry out for his kingdom, for his will to be done and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Again, faith may start with reason, but it's activated by obedience and it's realized through experience. You will not get that experience if you do not activate faith through obedience. Just like Abraham in verse 8, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. But he had a good reason to go. He had a great reason to trust. He had a good reason to obey. But his faith wouldn't have been faith at all had without a reason, right? It had to be activated. If it was just a reason, all he had was reason. It had to be activated by obedience. He had to go. Or that faith was worthless. As James said, faith without works is dead. But as he stepped out, as he trusted, he also experienced God's presence and tasted of his goodness along the way. And the more he responded in faithful obedience, the more he tasted of God's goodness and faithfulness, and the stronger his faith became as he became a matured man of faith in Christ, even looking forward to Christ the King who would come as we look back to the one who has come and will return. So now I've used an illustration before of faith using a chair. Some of you may have been here for that, but I... Uh, Tim Mackey took the illustration to a whole new level. So um, I think it's going to be helpful to drive this message home. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question real quick. All right? Is there a chair behind me right now? Not the drum stool. But is there a chair like the one you're sitting in? Is it behind me right now? No. So if I, if I sit down right now, what's going to happen? I'm going to fall, right? But what if I'm like... I believe there's a chair. I in Jesus' name, let a chair be there. What if I shout it like that? Is the chair going to magically appear behind me? What if I sit down faithfully? <laughs> what if I'm like, I have no, like, don't, no, I won't, none of you. I'm, look, I am not going to listen to any one of you right now that tells me there's no chair there. I believe that chair is there. Universe, make it there. 
What's going to happen if I sit down? I'm going to fall. Right? That's not faith. That's stupid. (laughs) The world thinks that's the kind of faith that we have in Christ. That's wrong. That's wrong. Okay. Pretend you don't see this happening. Can you bring me a chair? I'll grab this one. I got it. (laughs) Pretend you don't see me grabbing this chair. All right. See how this goes. All right. (laughs) So now, is there a chair behind me? Pretend I don't see it and didn't know that it was there. Is there a chair behind me? You sure? You sure there's a chair behind me right now? Okay. I can't see the chair. I don't know the chair's there. I can't see it, but you can. Not only can you see it, you're experiencing a chair just like it. You got your own chairs. You're sitting in those chairs. You know that that chair is enough to hold you, to support you. So is there a good reason for me to think that there may be a chair behind me right now? Why? Because of the testimony of people I trust. Because there's a cloud of witnesses who are experiencing even currently this chair. Because there's a thousands and thousands of years of testimony of people who have experienced the substantial reality of that chair and have placed their faith in that chair, so to speak. But I can't see the chair. So how do I get there? Seriously, how do I get there? Local church community, how do I get to the chair right now? Is it ever? No? I'm trusting you. I'm trusting. Now, I'm trusting. I'm trusting. I'm experiencing. I'm, in, I'm obedient. I'm obedient. I'm faithful, obedient. I'm, tr- I'm experiencing. Ooh, I'm experiencing. I'm tasting. There's something beyond myself that's supporting me and carrying me and holding me. Now, I see you. And you're experiencing the same thing. Now, I'm not just doing this. Oh, I don't know about this chair. <laughs> like, if I give it all my weight, it might break. But I'm seeing you, and Dave is bigger than me. <laughs> that's, <laughs> hey, that's a strong joke. I told my wife I almost used an illustration like this and had him pick me up and carry me around the room. That almost happened. But I, I, I see that, and I see him. He's lounging, and he's loving it. He's got his arm up. He's got, like, look at him. So this is faith, resting, trusting, experiencing, testifying. Guys, you can sit down and rest, right? That's faith. It starts with reason, but it's activated by obedience, and it's realized through experience. This is who we are. This is what we do. So it's not this straining thing. It's trust, right? This is what the men and women of Hebrews 11 experienced. John Piper put it like this. Faith grasps, lays hold of God's preciousness so firmly that in the faith itself there is the substance of the goodness and the sweetness promised. Faith doesn't create what we hope for, That would be a mere mind game. Faith is a spiritual apprehending or perceiving or tasting or sensing of the beauty and sweetness and preciousness and goodness of what God promises, especially his own fellowship and the enjoyment of his own presence. Faith does not just feel confident that this is coming one day. Faith has spiritually laid hold of and perceived and tasted that it is real. And this means that faith has the substance or the nature of what is hoped for in it. Faith's enjoyment of the promise is a kind of substantial down payment of the reality that's coming. Woo! This is one reason why we encourage you to come and see Come and taste that the Lord is good. This is why we encourage people to come consistently and gather with us for at least five consecutive weeks, right? It's about more than just one encounter. It's about more than just hearing some dude up here preach and talk about it. We want to give you the reasons, yes, right? But I want to invite you to activate your faith 
in obedience so that you might experience him for yourself. And then to remind one another of his goodness as we behold him together and share this life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other and our city and beyond. This is why we exist. This is our mission as the church. This is faith. You may be unsure at first, but once true faith becomes activated through obedience, suddenly you're going to experience the substance of it, and the evidence is going to come to life. And that's when you somehow know that you know that you know that you know that you know. And the more that you taste, the more that you see, and the more that you know, and the more that you're known by him, the more you want other people to see and know and experience. And you realize then that he is more real than real, that this is faith, and this is our heritage as church people. Because true faith begins with reason. It's activated by obedience, and it's realized through experience. Let's pray.